Second Samuel chapter 22, cherished salvation. I, th- I think in the English language, cherish is probably the closest to agape we've got. I mean, love, you know, I love this, I love that. To cherish something elevates love, at least in my thinking. And David, he cherished his salvation, his relationship with God. It comes out in this psalm when David was being restored for his awful sin. He asked God to not take from him the joy of his salvation. Well, he pours it out here, as mentioned in other studies, when he was forgiven, he wasn't the same man, but he'd get back on track. And, and this is, I think, a, a part of that process. I think he's back on track with this psalm. He wrote almost half the psalms in the Bible. In fact, I believe many of the psalms that are entitled the Psalms of the Sons of Korah really were penned by David and sung by the Sons of Korah. Um, it just the language belongs totally to David. And it's, it's unique. Uh, no one in the Old Testament was as articulate, uh, prolifically so. I mean, there's so much articulation about his worship towards God. Uh, this psalm is not only biographical, but it is also messianic. It is quoted in the New Testament, or parts of this psalm, and applied to the Messiah. And when he wrote this psalm, of course, he wrote it speaking to God, to be a song that was the people were to sing. Or you could just retell it. Just re- speak the words, read the words, say the words. That express this profound gratitude towards God. For deliverance from his enemies and the innumerable blessings that also were a part of his life. Again, he cherished his salvation because he loved God so much. I believe this psalm was penned after he had been on the throne a long time. And it was, the title tells us, after his God had put his enemies down. And that's important because it's going to, to be a factor in understanding some of the things that he says. Of course, at this point, Saul is dead. The kingdom is united. And there are no known threats, domestic or foreign. And again, it is important, since he writes about his righteousness, his own righteousness with abandonment to understand where he's coming from at this stage in his life. Um, Incidentally, it's almost identical to Psalm 18. There are some modifications. I think Psalm 18 is the second edition of this Psalm. The modifications are slight, with the exception of the first verse in Psalm 18, which I'm going to get to in, in a minute. And perhaps events in the previous chapter, when Ishbi Binab, the giant, uh, almost killed David, maybe that uh, sort of was the catalyst that uh, stirred him to say, Thank you, Lord, for delivering me. There on the battlefield, well, there's no way to establish that, but it's, uh, it makes perfect sense. It's very poor English, but a very, uh, or, but a very good advice that many of the Psalms, and this being one of them, are better felt than telt. You've got to feel the Psalm and not just recite it. Uh, for David, uh, this was his life. And the people were supposed to identify with this. And he knew that they would because he felt he was just like everybody else in, in many ways. He had the same troubles on, uh, relative to his position as king, of course. But he, he knew life. And to have prevailed over frightful foes with God allows us to join the psalm, as with other scriptures also. He sings his praises without doubt. There's not a hint of maybe in in what he is saying about his relationship and his salvation with Yahweh and what Yahweh has done for him. And now we look at verse 1. Then David spoke to Yahweh the words of this song on the day when Yahweh 
had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Well, of course, Saul is outstanding. But we notice David spoke to Yahweh the words of this psalm, or song, which is a psalm. And he is directly speaking to God. And he's just including, when he publishes it, he just includes everybody else and says, hey, this worked for me. And do with it as you please. But the Holy Spirit is saying, no, I gave this to David and I'm sharing it. And he's doing so out of love. As we do. We come and we sing to an invisible person. We are singing to Jesus Christ because we know him. Well, David is doing this with Yahweh. In the second edition, Psalm 18, David has a remarkable opening in the first sentence that's not here in this first edition. He says in Psalm 18, verse 1, I will love you, O Yahweh, my strength. That's very remarkable. That opening, I will love you. That Hebrew verb translated, I will love you, in the Old Testament is never used Well, it's always used from God to man with the exception of that one time in Psalm 18. So what we have is David saying, I understand God loves me and I love him back. Which in the Old Testament, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, not frequent. You get to the New Testament, Christ is all over that. He says, I will love you. And uh, he, he meant it, all of it. It's not easy to keep that in front of us, but it's very important. Uh, David knew, again, and articulated. He knew the love of God. He articulated it. It became doctrine. The things that he spoke about from his experiences became doctrine. Uh, Our hymns, many of them, are loaded with doctrine. They teach us about God. Uh, I think Many of the modern songs, there's not much doctrine. There's a lot of it is just we want you to feel good about Jesus. And uh, that's, it makes them shallow. Some of them are downright not Christian. Yeah, you know, I don't know if Christian music should be entertaining before it is um, worship. At what point do I want to pick, you know, better to listen to Christian music that's not a hymn and doctrinal than the what the world has, so we could be tread lightly there. But something for all of us to be mindful when we listen to Christian music, what's going on? Am I singing this to the Lord? At what point does he get exalted? At what point do I realize that I am a believer and that I can be strong and that I can serve back? Because that's what we're getting out of this song. David is again, he writes with abandonment. And I want to speed it up because I want to get to those sections. He says, On the day when Yahweh had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, the Philistines, the Amorites, the Sauls, his own son Absalom, uh, just uh, all of them, uh, Sheba, the Benjamite who tried to usurp, uh, take the throne from David once he uh, defeated Absalom. Uh, So this is latter in his life. In his, in his reign also. I think, again, even after the awful sin against Uriah, um, uh, his psalms, David's psalms, they're loaded with cries for help from his enemies, which just tells us, man, how many enemies does this guy have? I mean, you could read the psalms of David and say, boy, he whines a lot. And then you realize, well, but he's also, he's God's man, and he's getting attacked a lot. He's got a big bullseye on him in the spiritual realm. And that's why, Psalm 22, verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. I mean, they're at me again. They're stronger than me. I'm, I'm, I'm trapped by these things. Here he is, this man after God's own heart, but they were men who wanted to stop his heart. Psalm 9, verse 13, Consider my trouble. From those who hate me. What did David do? I mean, there were some folks he did some things to to make them hate him. But there were a lot. Saul, for example, had no grounds to hate David. No fair grounds. He says from the hand. It says here, on the day that the Lord had delivered him uh, from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul. Saul, the most inveterate of David's adversaries. Saul was the enemy that only God could deliver David from. 
There was just no other way. David would not kill him. He had twice he had opportunity and he refused. This was something that was past him. And David just suffered through it until finally God did something about it. David would write about being hated in Psalm 7, Psalm 25, Psalm 35, Psalm 109, Psalm 119. I mean, just, just, he just kept telling us uh, how much he is hated. And I'll quote a few more as we go on. In verse 2, now David says, uh, now it says, And he said, The Lord is my rock and the fortress and my deliverer. So, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. That now starts the, the, the first rendition of this psalm, uh, whereas, again, in Psalm 18, it's the same psalm with some modifications, the second edition. Because, you know, he, he goes back and he writes, you know, that I love the Lord. You, you know he didn't take that out. He would have put that in, but he wouldn't have taken it out. And that's why I, I believe this is the first uh, edition. And we, we see this. We see this with books in print, you know, Bahali's Bible Handbook, for example. Uh, you, you don't want anything past the 26th edition. Uh, Zondervan has corrupted it. Uh, anyway, because Zondervan is corrupt. Uh, they bought the company from the Zondervan family. has been downhill ever since. Anyway, uh, here in verse 2, the rock is that unseen foundation upholding the fortress walls. Matthew 7 comes to mind. Verse 22, And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And you get a Christian, and some Christians will look at that and say, yeah, you know, um, well, every time I mess up, I'm the one that's falling. I'm built on sand. No, that's not it. If you love the Lord, he's your Lord and Savior, then the grace of God is upon you. He's talking about those who are rejecting God. And the proof of that are the Bible characters, the stories of their lives. Uh, men like David, for example, who, you know, sinned horribly, and yet God built him back, built him back up. Uh, you know, blessed assurance, it's supposed to be real. And that's what this, this psalm is. It is the blessed assurance. We know uh, the, the, the Old Testament phrase, so the rock goes back to Deuteronomy 32 and and, and 1 Samuel 2. Now in verse 3, David continues, The God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you have saved me from violence. Well, he did. David's alive to write this, but look how much he had to go through. Uh, we've been studying his life just in Samuel. We haven't gone into Chronicles. We haven't, well, we've referenced here and there. But the Psalms, again, almost half of them written by him. You have, a, they're, they're biographical and how much he, he endured. In verse 3, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation. I want to re, I'm rereading this because of the personal program, pr pronouns. Uh, here we have my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You can get this, this intimacy between he and God. And he's singing about it. This is something that he finds is something to sing about. Remembering these things, a critical element of our faith, that God is our strength. And you're going through troubles and he's no longer your strength. Oh man, that's a tough one to endure. In whom I will trust. Uh... This is the harder part when harm comes our way because evil has a lot of long reach, a lot of power. And is it, David, looking back on his life, said, I just trusted God. And remember when he was with Achish in the Philistine camp and he had to pretend madness to get out of that jam? And just, a, I mean, this was a life and death for him. This was not just about bad credit and not being, and it, this was, you know, the sword would have. Uh, he was facing. My shield and the horn of my salvation. That's personal protection. Uh, the horn. That's an animal. And a horn on an animal is an open carry. I'll let you think about that. Uh, it is always a weapon. 
I mean, a rhino. I mean, he doesn't like, you know, boy, I wish somebody would put some nice little rings on this and maybe pretty it up. It, that thing's a weapon to kill things. And you can go on YouTube and you can see animals with horns flipping over cars. I mean, elephants, rhinos, the wildebeest. I mean, these things, nature, these animals and their horns are crazy. But uh, if you lived in this society, you would have very much known that. Watch out for the horns. Uh, just think of, you know, a wild boar with those tusks. Why they call them? Why don't they just call them all horns? And stop this distinction with that's a tusk. That's anyway. <laughs> my stronghold and my refuge. I'm still in verse three. You save me from violence. It's the castle fortification. My stronghold. Verse four. I will call upon the Lord. I will call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Yeah, well, maybe you're going through just horrible stuff. Just it seems like you defeat it all the time. And you read this, you say, well, I'm calling upon the Lord. He is worthy to be praised. But will I be saved from my enemies? David, did you really believe each time you face these things, did you really believe you would be saved every single time? Nope. There were times, not often it appears, there, there just were those times where he felt the bully would win. The bully had not been dealt the blow that needed to stop him. First Samuel 27, David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me, to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. And when we covered that, we, you know, that was a mistake of David. But we didn't, you know, you're forced, you put yourself in his place. What would you have done? I probably would have gone to the place of least conflict myself. But my point is, here he is looking back over his life. And he says, God was with me. I had my tough times. And God was with me all the time. Verse 5, when the waves of death Surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. So he's admitting, he said, I was overwhelmed. Fear, no solution. First hand experience, Saul, Absalom, Ishbai Binab. Verse 6 The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. Well, Sheol is used in the Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, a synonym for death the underworld, and, and so he's saying, I was at, it was, I, you know, I was, as, I was as doomed as doomed could be, is what he's saying. Verse, verse, verse 7, in my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Really? Really, David? It makes it sound so simple. Well, he's giving us a summary. He's summarizing his life. Yeah, and the bottom line, this is what happened. But David himself wrote about the times when he prayed and he felt that God wasn't listening. David was the one that wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Initially applying it to his life. Of course, it had a, a, a wider reach all, all the way to Messiah. That's who it was meant for, ultimately. Psalm 6, verse 6, a psalm of David. I am weary with my groaning all night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. So you kind of read this and say, come on, David, stop. But, you know, if you're getting crushed, that's where you are. And if, you're, if you consider yourself a strong Christian, you know, watch out when you're handling those that are weaker. It's, a, it's a, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to pour gasoline on the fire and fuel their weakness. And at the other time, you don't want to be insensitive to them. And they can just make it very difficult. You just want to, can you just stop so I don't have to be feeling this way with you? Uh, I mean, anyway, Psalm 22, another Psalm of David. After, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. He's pouring it out. Then there is Gethsemane. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The righteous struggle and the righteous prevail 
Although when we're going through it, we don't think we're going to prevail. Am I going to be the exception? Remember what I did back in then? Maybe I'm being punished for it. Verse 8. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon the cherub and flew and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. Those poetic imagery here. Uh, when God arrives, it's in so- he's sovereign, and he arrives with this dramatic demonstration of force, which is not dramatic to God. It's dramatic uh, to us. As, <laughs> uh, you know, everything is subject to God. From our perspective, everything about God is, is uh, well, nothing about God is casual. He is ruler over creation, and he is the rescuer of those in distress. But it's that clock ticking that really makes everything difficult. You know, how long before God then shows up in in this might? But speaking of this, in the New Testament, speaking of Antichrist and his ending, Paul says, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom, he says, whom, by the way, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And so there's a, a, a shortened version of what David just gave us in uh, verses 8 through 11. Now, verse 12, he made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Well, John in his first letter says that there is no dark, darkness in God. He's dealing with the Gnostics and their little just silly little stuff they were bringing up. And there's no darkness in God, and God is light. And God was before there ever was a was. So darkness is created. It is not natural. Uh, It is supernatural. It is a created entity. The work of creation was done in light. That's physical light, created light, I should say. It's Genesis 1, let there be light. That's created light. There are other types of light. Uh, but the work of redemption was done in the dark. In Matthew 27, of course, uh, there was darkness over the, uh, at the cross for the, uh, the space of three hours. And that was those last three hours. So that is an interesting connection. That he made darkness canopies around him. It's created, he created the darkness. Uh, verse 13, from the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. Well, that just says God generates and radiates. He is the source of created light and created energy. Uh, that's all we know. Is to, uh, we only know the created things uh, except the uncreated God. Uh, but there are so many other things. To, to I mean, it's going to be, I would think, so much to do in heaven. So much to learn and to explore and to tinker with, and nobody to yell at you. I mean, it's like nobody. To, it's going to be wonderful. I mean, can you gorge at the tree of life on the fruit? I mean, was, will anybody yell at you? Hey, leave some for someone else. Anyway, anyway, verse fourteen. Yahweh thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Well, in the days of Samuel, God sent, sent thunder and scattered the Philistines. Uh, here, here we see, you know, David is just pouring it on. He's just enjoying this poetry, uh, the, the imagery of, that belongs to uh, our God. And it is, I think, you know, God certainly wouldn't be impressed by it. Like, yeah, that's right. Uh, like, like we would, you know, if we were, in the human sense. And in another sense, God is impressed that his servant loves him this much. We come to this and we just say, boy, this man, David, knowing his life, he's just pouring it on about God. Verse 16, then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Uh, this recalls to mind the flood of Noah and the parting of the Sea of Reeds, Yam Suf usually translated Red Sea, which is not accurate. 
It is the right side of the rabbit ears looking at the Red Sea, which was known as the Sea of Reeds, Yam Suf, um, where they crossed. Anyway, uh, that's some, some people don't agree with that, but you know that's okay. Verse 17, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of the waters. There's more poetic language cons- about God rescuing David. Um, I think all of us can be a little fluffy at times if, when we are happy. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you are one that likes to write, you, you can just write and you go back and read it and realize you can't write. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but I mean, I, I like to write my prayers. I, you can, it's another level of expression. I don't always like to do that, but there are times I like to do that. And um, I sometimes am very impressed with some of the things I discover. God seems to do what he's going to do anyway. So, uh, Verse 18, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. So he returns now from the poetic language to his direct speech, and he's saying, God delivered me from strong enemies, those who hated me. It's not, no one likes to be hated. And, and to be hated repeatedly is, 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 is it's a drag, uh, or to feel that you are hated. Now, and I'm not talking about paranoia. And certainly David did not have paranoia. There were people that just hated his guts. Uh, They were too strong for him. Psalm 69, another psalm of David, he wrote, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing I must restore. And so David is saying, boy, I've, I've got... A lot of enemies, more than the hairs of my head, is the language he uses to just say, I've got a, a bunch. And uh, just what a tough life. We, you know, you think of him, he's just sitting there under a tree with a psalm in his hand. He's got his crown on. He's just bellowing out the psalms. You know, he, he had a hard life, too. Verse 19, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. So there's that conflict and confrontation that I don't know about you, but I don't care for. Isaac, he just would leave it. You know, his, his father, Abraham, dug wells. The Philistines stopped them up. Other people challenged him. Isaac would dig a well. They'd go, this really belongs to us. You've got to leave. And Isaac was a peaceful man. And he would just turn the other cheek and leave and go dig another well. And ultimately, he digs a well and they leave him alone. But here he was a man that did not seem to uh, care for conflict. Uh, I don't know that anybody really cared. Well, some people, you know, Ishmael's. There are Ishmael's. His hand is against every man. Every man's hand is against him. They're just those characters in life. They just thrive on conflict, it seems. Uh, but uh, Isaac was not one of those. Uh, blessed are the peacemaker, peacemakers. They shall be called the children of God. Verse 20. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The nerve. The nerve. After all he's been through to say, God has delighted in me. Um, we, listen, you get enough pressure on you, you'll be wondering if God hates you for not delivering you. Uh, he does not hate you. Uh, but here, David, he knew God loved him. John chapter 16, Jesus trying to communicate this to the people who were so beaten up by the guys with planks in their eyes, those Pharisees and Sadducees who judged everybody. Instead of ever judging themselves, they just judged everyone else. That's a Pharisee. Oh, instead of building their walk with the Lord, they're going to nitpick your wall. You want to just conflict them one time uh, to stop that, but, you know... Uh, just don't 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 walk around with a Christian microscope, magnifying glass, looking for problems in other people. Anyway, John sixteen, Jesus said, "The Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me, and have believed that I came forth from God." And so there, Christ is saying, "God loves you because you believe in Me." 
Not because, you know, you, you know, you're such a good boy. You know, you can be a moralist and go to hell because you reject the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and be self-impressed. Look at me. I'm an upstanding citizen. Yeah, but not in the kingdom of heaven without Christ. Uh, David is, he, he just says, he also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. To be able to say that, to write that down, and with abandonment, not caring what people are going to say about you. It's just what I believe. I believe God delights in me. He sees my faults. David was aware of his, his larger failures. It was the, the one with Uriah was not the only one. There was also the numbering of the people. More people suffered and died because of that than his sin against Uriah. And yet he still finds God delighted with him and delivers him. And he confesses it. because Well, he confessed his sins for sure, and he, but he admits to everybody else, I'm comfortable with God's care for me. We're going to develop that. Verse 21 now. Yahweh rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. Now, there are those commentators that think David had to have written this psalm before his sin with Bathsheba and Ur- uh, against Uriah. I don't agree. You, you, I mean, it's not a big problem. Good Bible teachers uh, hold that position because they have to explain this. But it doesn't fit what the rest of what he's going to write. He wrote this when all the enemies were done. In the days of Uriah, he still was fighting enemies. See, that's very, to me, very easy to, to fix. But then you say, well, how do you account for this apparent arrogant statement. Well, he's not claiming absolute righteousness. This is the voice of a life uncorrupted by idolatry. David boasted that he never considered a false god. Um, too bad Solomon couldn't, could not uh, share in that. He only saw the true God in spite of his sins, which brings us to a very critical New Testament section about this very thing. The spirit that David is exhibiting is what Paul is trying to get the New Testament believer to embrace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And we pause there. David says, I'm reconciled when God forgave me. Nathan the prophet said, I was forgiven. He told me what my punishment would be. It took me a while to get it together, but I love God and he loves me. And he sees my righteousness. It continues in Second Chronicles. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation to find solutions without beating everybody up. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul is saying, I'm liberated. I'm free in Christ. I'm forgiven. I was a part of the stoning of Stephen, and it is gone. And then Paul says at the end of this section, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, David is saying, I discovered this in the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm the righteous. God's righteousness is on me. He's embracing New Testament theology in the Old Testament. And I think it's wonderful that God would have this here for us. To tell us there is a such thing as blessed assurance. To know that you are saved. That beats the snot out of hell's agenda for your life personally. We need these verses in our Bible. We need to see a man stand up and say, forgiven, that's what I am, and unashamed of it. And David says, even in his worst state of sin, he never lost sight of Yahweh. That's what is baked into these confessions that he's writing here. Psalm 139, another psalm of David, verses 7 through 9, well, 7 and 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee? From your presence. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. David always knew God was everywhere. In his worst state, he knew God saw everything and was right there. That's why his bones, he said, were like you know, hardened up. 
Life was tough when he wasn't admitting his sin and dealing with it, fighting it. This, again, New Testament theology in the Old Testament. The understanding of God's grace, the God's willingness, God's willingness to forgive. God is eager to forgive. Else there'd be no Calvary. And so when Paul writes, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace, not my grace. According to God's riches. Well, how rich is God? Well, he, knows, he owns the hills with a thousand cattle. I mean, uh, I mean, he just, he, it's unlimited. Now David adds, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. And he is going to build on that in this next verse 22. Building on what he just said. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God. He's not he's saying not saying I haven't sinned, but I've always held to Yahweh. More than anything, what defiles the life of a human being is rejection of the only true God. And David said, I didn't do it. And David sinned, but he was never an apostate. And he writes this again from this remarkable sense of grace. Listen to what he says about himself. We'll get this next session in Samuel. We've read this before. It was beautiful then, and it'll be beautiful now. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? He's saying, my house has been a mess. And I've messed up so much. And yet God has a covenant with me. This is my salvation, he says. I mean, sometimes we just need to get up in the face of the enemy and say, I am saved, I am loved, I am blood bought. When, you know, to walk around thinking, you know, I don't know, am I still saved? At what point do you say, I receive? 1 John chapter 5, the, the old first church, the first Christians. When I say the first church, I don't mean the first assembly. I mean the first believers when the apostles were still alive. They struggled with that too. They could see the sins that they had committed in their past and they heard, heard the gospel. They came to Christ and then in time they figured they still had some of these urges and ambitions and things in their life. And they wondered, am I really saved? And the Gnostics came along with their stuff. And, and John says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You've got to say, boy, I love that. I may not be strong all the time, but I can be strong sometimes. I can be strong when I sit in the assembly and hear the word of God preached to me. And if I get strong listening to lo and loving God's word, I will be stronger than if I had not listened and heard that. And you, you, at what point does faith, you know, turn into action? When you're out by yourself, when you're out facing the devil, the world... That's when it, it happens. And yet God is, he already knows what you're going to face. He's already made provision for it. Um, I, I think maybe when we get to heaven, we're going to be in such shock that it was so much greater than what the Bible could ever tell us. The half of which has not been told. I think that whole episode with Sheba, that part, with Sheba and Solomon, when she says, I have, I've come to your house, I've seen your servants, and the half of which has not been told. Well, heaven's going to far exceed that. Uh, again, we ask, yeah, but what about Uriah? Because that's what we do. Psalm 32, David wrote this after being forgiven. Blessed is the man whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, and, and David is saying, you know, I'm just embracing this. The man, he's, he's forgiven me. I am that blessed man. God is not charging me with the crime I committed because he is good. And he did not have the New Testament. And with this ministry of reconciliation that has been so further developed. And this is, he's so articulate with the things that so many in his age were missing. He was expressing took David years to fully recover. But when he did, his recovery was full. And you have to admire that. You have to say, not only do I admire that, I want some of that. Verse 23, For all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. 
David always knew when he was doing wrong. He knew when he was sinning. It wasn't, you know, there was just no way he was, you know, we only read some of the big ones. There were certainly other things he did wrong. Uh, uh, but yet he's engulfed with, in, in grace. He's, he's just shrouded in the grace of God. Because he knows, my, my heart is right. I love God. He's got these commandments. They're beautiful. I mean, he's he really just talking about the law. And, and yet, he knows he, his, his shortcomings, his sin. Verse 24, I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Well, sometimes he did. That, that's the fact. And again, not claiming sinless perfection. Um, separated from honoring other gods all of his life. And uh, the strength of this man is in his relationship with God. Hell couldn't stop David is what it comes down to. And he's not the only one. Hell couldn't stop Abraham. Couldn't stop Enoch. <laughs> couldn't stop, you know, Haggai. Uh, the, the Habakkuk, one of my favorites. I mean, Habakkuk just was just, I don't like what God is doing. I really don't care for this. And just submitted to it. And uh, the, the book of Habakkuk, every Christian should read it. Well, verse 25, therefore... Yahweh has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Now, again, he's either arrogant or liberated. Which is it? If he gets to be the most quoted man in the New Testament, if Jesus speaks of David as though God, and Jesus said, David, uh, in the spirit said, when, when uh, the, the, the honor Christ gave this man, you have to ask this question. When he makes statements like he's been making, he's either arrogant or he is a man who is set free. And that's what I believe. Paul said it this way in Second Timothy. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. I mean, I know who I believe in. And uh, again, at what point does faith become invincible for us? Well, it is here for David. So this is why, going back to the beginning, it was important to say... These things happened to him after he committed these horrible sins. Uh, here is a man being restored, and this is what it looks like. And if you had crumbled, uh, you would want to be restored too. You'd, you'd want to get to this place. Uh, verse 26, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. Jesus said it this way, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It makes you say, well, what happens if you don't want to give mercy? I don't, I don't want to find out. Verse 27. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. In other words, God will... Uh, he will fit his response to what people do, if necessary... Jesus said it this way, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The ones that are genuine. None of us have pure hearts in the sense of sinlessness. But we can possess a genuineness, and, and that is a purity in itself. Titus chapter 1, Paul said, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Have you ever met somebody that was just a gangster through and through? I mean, they just steal anything. They do anything, chance to do wrong, they take it. You know, they get bored. Let's, you know, let's go. Let's go do something. What they meant, let's go make trouble. Uh, I have known people like that. You could see it, and you just didn't want to be around these kind of people. Uh, but the, you know, then there are good people that, you know, they, they may mess up from time to time, but they're good people. I mean, you still don't want them to stay too late after an invite. <laughs> it's just like, look, I know. It's time for my bedtime, and yours too at your house. Anyway, <laughs> it's not a sin to tell somebody, come back and visit again when you don't have so much time to stay. <laughs> Philippians, how can you not love this? Finally, brethren. Paul, you know, <laughs> finally, brethren. Whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, 
Meditate on these things. Think them through. Occupy time on these things. And we need to learn this. Instead of, you know, running to bad news. Just whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, just, pure, lovely, good report. Meditate. Praiseworthy. Or just be the bringer of bad news every time. like <laughs> Ritevia, don't you have any good news to bring us? <laughs> I don't write this. I, anyway, verse 28. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. Well, I don't think David's been haughty in what he's been saying, and have you got my explanation? Uh, 2 Samuel after David danced before the ark with all of his might, who else would have thought to do that? In all of Israel's history, who else but David would have thought to, as king, say, I got, I got to do this. <laughs> I got to dance. And he, he just gets in front of the ark. He's twirling around. And if you go to Israel and you see how they do this, you, you say, okay, that makes sense. He's not, you know, tap dancing. Uh, that would <laughs> All right. Um, David, after he did that, of course, where does it end up? Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. After Lord David said, so, Nathan, i got to build a house for God, for the ark. And Nathan says, do as in your heart. And then God says to Nathan, nah, you shouldn't have said that. Go back and tell David, he can't do that. And, but, but tell David, I'm going to bless him anyway. And he goes back and tells him. And then David responds to God. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh. And he said, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? So my point, the man, the humility was there. So when he says, You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty, that you may bring them down. Well, David understood the, uh, the, uh, what arrogance was and what humility was. And I do not think he was being arrogant. Verse 29, for you are a lamp, O Yahweh. Yahweh shall enlighten my darkness. Well, the illumination, well, the lamp symbolizing God's guidance through God's scripture. Peter says, so we have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, we have Bible prophecy fulfilled right in front of our eyes. And nobody else has got this. And he continues, he does, which you do well to heed. As a light that shines in a dark place. Well, that's what David is saying here. Psalm 119, 105, David wrote, I believe, Psalm 19 is like Hebrews. Yeah, Paul wrote Hebrews, David wrote Psalm 19, 119. That's my take. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 30. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. He's saying the Holy Spirit energizes him. He gets his superpowers like he could just run through anything. Uh, without God, I can't. With him, I can. Verse 31. I don't know. Can you run through a troop of doubt? Can, how about time? You know, an army of time standing before you, just wearing you down, wearing you down. Uh, these are the things I want to run through and leap over with my faith. Um, verse 31. For God... As for God, his way is perfect, and the word of Yahweh is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. And remember, there were times that David felt that shield wasn't working so well for him. Verse 32, For who is God except Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? Isaiah says, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Well, you tell the Jehovah Witnesses, and then you get to Philippians, and it says, didn't count a robbery to be equal with God. God said you can't be equal with him unless you're equal with him. So Christ has to be equal with God the Father. And that is the deity of Christ. And if you do not believe Jesus is God the Son, then you can't be a Christian. You're out. You go to the Jehovah Witnesses, and we'll take you. Or the Mormons, or somebody else. But it's, who do you say that I am? And most of the Jews... A great part of them at that time believed that Messiah would be uh, equal with God. Uh, again, let's take a few more because I love it so. Psalm 113, verse 5. This is, this is uh, it's, it's David here 
When David says, for who is God except Yahweh, it's rhetorical and it's defiant at the same time. Uh, it, it's a scoff built into it that anybody that would dare try to be equal with Yahweh is to be scoffed at. Uh, anyone that would try to be a, a savior other than Christ is to be scoffed at. That's the idea. So in Psalm 113, who is like Yahweh our God who dwells on high? Well, it's rhetorical and it's a scoff. Nobody. Uh, Isaiah 46, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Well, nobody. God is saying, he can say, God can speak in, in various dialects. He can say, he can speak in Brooklynese, you know, who you got? You got nobody. <laughs> I mean, if you write your prayers out and you misspell a word, God knows what you're saying. That's how, all right. God, verse 23, verse 33. God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. Have you ever sniveled? I thought yours was the kingdom and the power and the glory. I need the power. I need the glory. Where is it? It's in perseverance. I don't want it to be in perseverance. I want it to end my problem. David. David was a praise warrior. Loving God was, again, not casual with him. It was extraordinary with David. I mean, you could just see this man, when he played his instrument, he just put his heart into it. It was just never, I probably never strummed. I don't know. I don't know anything about music except I either like it or don't. But I know this. This man who danced before the ark with all his might and, and put out all these psalms uh, it was, had a passionate and practical faith and rough times and not so rough times. Psalm 42, 11. Here's a rough time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted in, within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him the help of my countenance and my God. So there he is. He's depressed. He doesn't know why he's depressed. And he's determined to break out of it. And he says, this is my strategy. I'm just going to praise God. I'm going to hope in God. He'll, he'll lift his countenance upon me. He's, he'll help me. But that's, my, that's how I'm going to handle this. Instead of, you know, all right, I'm not going to make a comment. Pastors aren't allowed to comment on depression unless they have a degree on depression. <laughs> Listen, if I feel it, then I got a right to say something about it. And I don't need to go to a college to tell me how to be depressed and how to fight it either. Um, and that's what the, is. It's, you fight it. Anyway, and not trivializing at all. Verse 34 He makes my feet like deer feet and sets me on high places. Well, that's kind of comical, David. David's got deer feet. David's got deer feet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't stop being childish as you grow older. You're going to need some of that stuff. Uh, anyway, of course, he's agile is what he is saying. He can dart through problems when he needs to because God has enabled him. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. He makes me able to win. That's what he is, is telling us. Uh, verse 36, you have also given me a shield of your salvation your gentleness has made me great. Is there a greater verse in the Bible than that? I mean, I'm the, the, it's not the greatest verse in the Bible, but think about it. The gentleness of God makes me great. How does that work? How does he, being nice to me, make me great? Well, that's what David's been saying. That's what Paul has been saying. We, you know, we've this, the righteousness of Christ is on us. It's the gentleness of, the goodness of God leads to repentance. We say, man, if God can forgive me, this is the whole parable of Christ, where the man who couldn't forgive the petty debt that he was owed after being forgiven this enormous debt. Uh, this is the gentleness of God. And it's, it, it's wonderful to, to have a man like David put it in print and for the people to embrace it. After all he had been through, when the dust settles, this is this man's conclusion. God has been gentle with me, and he, it has made me great. In verse 20, 37 now, you enlarge my path under me, so my feet did not slip. When I was working, learning to walk steel, I was hoping God would enlarge my path under me. Um, he did not do that, but he did not let me slip. Verse 38, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. 
neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. This is thorough service, not minimal service. David makes sure he finishes the job. We're going to get to this when we get into Kings. And the the prophet on his deathbed tells the king to to shake the arrows. And the king does a half-hearted job. And "Ah, you should have kept going. You just lack zeal. And David says, I did not have a lack of zeal. I was passionate, and I dealt with the things that were wrong, and I dealt with them thoroughly. Verse 40, For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. It's good to learn where your strong points are. Well, you know, some people are just, you know, they have a gift of tact. They're tactful. They're able to tell somebody something that's not pleasant in a very nice way, and, and the person doesn't get offended, and there are those that have that gift. There are some that have the gift of um, this or that. I don't go into it. But it's good to learn where your strong points are. It would be a bad thing if everybody says, I have the gift of teaching. How does that work? (laughs) Uh, Then it turns into a debate. So I'm not saying you can't have the gift of teaching. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there are a lot of other things we need also. And I'll also add, one gift's not enough. I would like all of them. Uh, if I could make a request. I don't have all of them, just the good ones. <laughs> all right. I guess you guys are kind of sleepy about now, so let's finish this up. Uh, I have pursued my enemies. Verse 38, destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again. I, I read that. Verse 40, I read that. Verse 41, you have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hate me. Well, I mean, once you get the neck like that, you win. You, you've, uh, you've, I picture, you know, you get a serpent by the neck. You just watch somebody else get him. <laughs> uh, I destroyed those who hated me. We can't do that as Christians with the sword, but we can convert them. Uh, that would be the same thing. Uh, they looked, but there was none to save, even to Yahweh. But he did not answer them. Yeah, because they were on the wrong team. Verse 43, Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets. I spread them out. <laughs> David, he just, has he gone mad? He's just letting it out, man. He's just saying, this is what I did. This is, this, Lord, this is how I handled this life as king. And he, unlike, again, he's not arrogant. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, the king spoke saying, Is this... Great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. See, that's the heathen king. Uh, David, of course, is, is saying, look, this, I did this stuff by your power, Lord, but I did it. And he's not apologizing for it. It would be like you know, Patton saying, you know, maybe we should have lost the Battle of the Bulge. And no, no, he would never say something like that. We beat them back. And and David is just telling it like it is. Verse 44, you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me as soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. So this again supports the late date for this psalm. Uh, By the time these things were happening, David was um, older, much older. Verse 47, Yahweh lives, blessed be the rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. This is a song within a song. Uh, Chapter uh, Psalm 18 says, the Lord lives, blessed be the rock. And let the God of my salvation be, because it's joined with me. All right, so that's a beautiful song. Verse 48 it is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. And David uh, trusted God to protect his monarchy. And he did. Verse 50. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. 
David preached Yahweh to unbelievers. Paul quotes this, Romans 15, verse 9, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And now verse 51, we made it. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. And the people would have loved their king having a, closing a psalm like this with such courage and assurance. Uh, David saw Yahweh as the king over kings. And we close with Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is the strong tower, and the righteous run in. They are safe. And so there, Solomon summed up the whole psalm, all 51 verses in one verse. No, he did not. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, a course in assurance from the Old Testament in not being bashful about receiving your love, that you love your people, and that uh, you do work in our lives. There are hard times and there are good times. And the bottom line is you expect us to face those things uh, with you according to your word. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.